Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns. I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President, and we're glad to see you today. We're glad to be back with you this week and hope everyone is staying safe and that you've had a great week so far. Um, we will be addressing some new information about the university's plans to reopen and we'll be welcoming our special guest today, the Tennessee Commissioner of Agriculture, Dr. Charlie Hatcher, who will be addressing you in just a few minutes. But first, you know the drill. For those of you who are new to our chats, we ask that you keep your audio muted. Um, use the chat function on Zoom to ask questions. You can publicly post those questions or you can send them to me privately and we'll try to get those answered for you. And of course, a recording of this session is being made and will be posted to the UTIA coronavirus, coronavirus website. And you can find that link on our homepage at utia.tennessee.edu. So Tim, can you give us the latest on plans for reopening our UTIA facilities and what that will entail? Well, thanks Lisa and, and good to be with everyone again. Uh, really appreciate everyone taking some time on a Friday afternoon to, uh, to gather together and, and uh, really revisit how we're doing, what we're doing, what the plans are. Uh, and I think we've, we've got a great uh, conversation lined up today with Commissioner Hatcher joining us as well. So we'll get to him in, in just a few moments. As Lisa mentioned, uh, we have uh, taken a few more steps uh, and I wanna make sure everyone's aware of that. So on the one hand, I could say we've got some news for you. On the other hand, the news is we're continuing to do what we've said we were going to do. So uh, some of you might feel like this is uh, a repeat of, of what you've heard before. However, I think it's important given that uh, we keep hearing about, reading about, and observing that, that cases, uh, positive cases of COVID-19 continue to, uh, to occur across the state. In our communities, uh, I just think it's important for us to to revisit, okay, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What's the plan? So uh, let me start off by saying we've sent a message to all of our supervisors this week, and that would include our deans, our directors, our department heads, and uh, hopefully that information is getting down to all of our uh, uh, frontline supervisors as well. And we've asked them to really start to work through a checklist uh, uh, about uh, reopening, if you will. And I know many of you are gonna say reopening, we've been open this whole time, or we've been largely open this whole time. Understand that, but uh, we're still moving towards uh, an early August expansion of, of our offices uh, being open, uh, not only on campus, but across the state. Now, that still doesn't mean this is an all hands back on deck, everybody back to work just like normal. And so we're, we're still approaching this, uh, it's, it's a new normal, it's a different approach, but it's one in which we wanna make sure we continue to serve our students, our stakeholders, our clients, uh, animal owners, and so forth, and continue to do so just as safely as possible and as effectively as possible. So in terms of uh, our supervisors, we ask them to really look at three general areas uh, for each of their uh, units, uh, maybe one or more offices that they're overseeing. Uh, but we ask them to think about what the uh, workspace controls are uh, in their office, things like seating. Uh, if guests come in, for example, where are they seated? How far apart are those seats and so forth? Look at our workstations uh, in those spaces. How are they configured? Uh, is there uh, a proper distancing if someone approaches those workspaces? 
uh, and, and uh, prepare for uh, additional students and or clients uh, to be present uh, in the future. And then uh, importantly, our common areas, uh, lobbies, elevators, uh, restrooms, uh, think about uh, what, if anything, needs to be done in those areas. We also uh, asked our supervisor to really think about face-to-face -face considerations. And uh, I think as everyone knows, uh, it's when we're uh, within six feet uh, of distance is when we're at the highest risk. So how do we go about uh, managing those face-to-face -face interactions with customers, with students, with clients, uh, and, and what can we do to really uh, protect uh, to the greatest extent possible all parties? Uh, we have floor signage that we can use to indicate six-foot distances. All of you have probably been at places where you saw uh, markings on the floor. We can certainly do that as well. Are physical barriers needed? If so, uh, we need to really uh, get serious about uh, erecting those barriers, um, whether it be with clear barriers like plexiglass or whether we actually need to to put up uh, uh, physical uh, uh, solid barriers uh, to, to ensure that six foot distance. So face-to-face uh, -face considerations uh, are number two on the list for our supervisors uh, in terms of our workspaces. And then third, uh, what about signage? So we've been using signage, I know, since day one of, of this pandemic. Uh, we've had a lot of generic messaging on our signs about distancing, masks, hygiene, and so forth. But also we need to be thinking about uh, what about some signage in our common spaces like the entrances, lobbies, elevators that I mentioned earlier. So all of that uh, is, is uh, really encompassed in the messaging that we sent out this week, as well as uh, asking our uh, frontline supervisors again to, to really work on developing plans for scaling up staffing uh, with the goal of having each office open but uh, also having in place a management plan so that we manage the number of customers, the number of students, the number of clients, uh, and the manner in which we meet their needs. Is it gonna be on an appointment only basis? Is it uh, with uh, a queue that, that includes six foot spacing? Is it calling a phone number to then uh, uh, you know, meet with a specific individual? So uh, we need to make plans for that staffing and emphasizing or re remembering that we've always stressed flexibility, compassion, uh, thinking about uh, certainly our high-risk individuals, but also those uh, who are facing challenges uh, with uh, school and uh, whether students are back in school or not. So, so that was the, the major communication that we uh, shared this week. Uh, Mr. Doug Bonner, uh, as well as our COVID task force, was involved in, in really helping to get that messaging out and uh, I hope that then uh, for the next week or so, we'll really be focused on uh, taking those specific next steps in our workspaces and for our staffing uh, considerations to be sure that we're ready for uh, reopening uh, in a broader sense and scaling up our presence in early August. And we know some of our, our uh, viewers here will probably have some questions, which we will get to um, here in a minute. but. You know, clearly the pandemic has not affected just us here at the university. It's also had a, um, an impact on our agricultural producers. Can you share your thoughts on this? Well, I can. You know, I, you've all recognized that this, this pandemic has affected everyone and, and not just the Institute of Ag, but we're, we're largely as an institute focused on serving folks, not only on campus, but across the state. And that's why I thought it'd be really helpful today uh, to invite Commissioner Charlie Hatcher uh, to visit with us 
and, and commissioner, I never know what to call you. If it should be Dr. Commissioner Hatcher or, uh, or uh, as I have known you for many, many years, Charlie, but uh, Commissioner Hatcher, we're really glad to have you with us uh, and share some of your perspectives about what you've seen across the state. So uh, uh, Commissioner Hatcher, for those of you on, on the call, has, has actually connected with the University of Tennessee multiple times over the past three days. We really uh, appreciate his support. He was at the Commission on Agriculture meeting Wednesday. He was at a Milan no-till meeting yesterday. And now here he is with us again today uh, for this fireside chat. So uh, there is no doubt that Commissioner Hatcher is a strong supporter, a great friend, a great partner, uh, and we're glad to have him with us. So what I'm going to do is ask uh, Dr. Hatcher a few questions, uh, give him a chance to respond, share any messages, of course, that he would like to share, and then we'll, we'll uh, open it up and Lisa can help uh, work through questions. Uh, both for Dr. Hatcher and, and for myself. So with that sort of setup, let me just start out, uh, Dr. Hatcher, and, and once again, welcome. And I uh, wonder if you'd like to share your perspectives uh, about what uh, you've seen about how Tennessee farms and our rural communities have been impacted by COVID-19 and, and maybe a little bit about how you've seen them respond as well. Oh, well, goodness. Uh, I, I've still got my mile and no-till hat on from yesterday, and I thought of <laughs> Sometimes I don't turn my video on, but I, I figured I'd show you proof of life. I, I am living and, and well. The, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this yesterday and, and Keith Carver was kidding me about it later on text, but, but my life is really all COVID all the time now. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just that way. Um, and that, that is a kind of a loaded question, but that's, I can give you my take on it. So uh, farmers in, in rural communities have been have been greatly impacted, of course. Uh, you know, before COVID, uh, we were, farm income was down 50% over a peak of four or five years ago already. And then we have, in Tennessee, of course, agriculture is, is and forestry together, the number one, it's the number one industry. And so I have a lot of dealings with rural com uh, communities and rural uh, counties. And in these rural counties, it's, it's predominantly, it's, it's one or two, or sometimes they've got a pretty good uh, percentage of both. It's farmland and it's trees. And so it's agriculture and forestry. So those industries are, uh, have been greatly impacted. B before COVID, we also had economically distressed counties by the three or four factors that we looked at, uh, unemployment, uh, median household income, and a number of other things. And now, after COVID or during COVID, it's almost everything's distressed. The, all, all the different ag sectors, there are some, uh, some bright spots. So if you haven't noticed, there's, a, there's been this re-emergence or, or big, huge demand for local products. Uh, if we can retain or, or value-added producers can retain a fraction of that demand after COVID is over, that will be a great win. And, it, and it's the, this, this pandemic has, has pushed and driven farmers and foresters both to be innovative and use technology, uh, things like uh, drive-through pickup, contactless pickup, um, different software programs to help them manage their business. It, it, that's been a bright spot as well. But we have had our fair share of, of issues. We've had several supply chain issues. We've dealt with 
some of the uh, big larger meat processors had some COVID outbreaks, uh, isolated outbreaks in some of the facilities. And we experienced in Tennessee, really not as bad, near as bad as other states, but this backlog of livestock that were ready for harvest. And we have successfully managed through that, but it does uh, bring up the importance of having uh, processing capacity within the state, especially meat processing. And there's other processing that we need to have increased capacity because it's easier to pivot during an emergency like this, if you have that processing facility within the state, but that's kind of hard to do with the interstate uh, commerce that we have and, and the export that we have. Now, most all, we, we lost a lot of export markets. Uh, Dr. Uh, Aaron goes over this when we have our, our ag stakeholder calls and commodity, most all commodity prices are down. So, um, you know, I say that, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not dismal. It's just, it's just a pretty tough situation now. And, and, um, uh, we're, tr we're trying our best to address it. Good. Well, thanks, uh, commissioner. And you, you identified a couple of things there. We've all said, you know, after this, uh, pandemic is over, there's things we've learned or things that have happened that we want to continue. And I think that the notion of more local sales is a great example of a positive here, but, uh, Certainly been plenty, mm -hmm. plenty of negative uh, things to deal with as well. So let, let's uh, take it a little further then. So you've seen uh, a lot of these uh, challenges across the state, but I also know you and your staff have been very busy responding to these uh, challenges. I wonder if you want to share just a few of the things uh, that have been going on uh, from the Department of Agriculture and your staff uh, in response to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, we, we've been trying to stay engaged with, with, with ag and forestry stakeholders, and we've had those. Uh, we started out weekly calls, uh, and we've gone to uh, twice a month or every two weeks, and those have been invaluable to me because I learn something every time I get on those calls about uh, what the health data looks like. And the governor was on one of the calls. We had the Speaker of the House, um, and it's, it's been it's been our attempt to try to stay in touch and, and there's nothing like doing that. Now there's been a plethora of USDA programs for on the producer side to, to help them. And those have been going well. And, um, uh, uh, my, Mike, uh, Mike can, uh, uh, brings those updates when he gives USDA updates uh, on those calls. Uh, we have, so we've, we've always been support of trying to support, uh, ag and forestry businesses. So we, we still have uh, ag enhancement. We did have it as a, as of yet taken a reduction in that we asked for an increase and that we're granted that initially until COVID hit and that's been taken away, but we're, we still have that 21 million base that we have uh, to work with unless, unless something happens that I'm not aware of. And we'll, there'll be, you know, a concentration of part of that to, to help uh, the current economic situation due to COVID. And then we have the uh, Ag Enterprise Fund. It's been invaluable to, to call share with, with ag and forestry businesses to help them. We've, we have that money. But in the last six or eight weeks, we've been working with the Unified Command and uh, the Governor's Office for some kind of program using the federal CARES money to support ag and forestry businesses. And we've come up with a plan for that in, in the next week or 10 days there should be a, a big announcement about about that in the in the cares money that's going to go in support of that so um, and we intend to kind of operate that 
sort of like we have um, ag enterprise fund and, and it'll be an application process and based on you have to prove a, a loss uh, or and a COVID ex expense to qualify for that so um, but it's more targeted it it's not a producer it's not going to be a producer oriented program it's going to be more of a if if you uh, if your business didn't receive much federal funding or wasn't uh, some some of the uh, programs that were that were afforded some of the business if you didn't get some of those uh, we intend to try to focus on the ones that didn't get other federal funding with this federal funding so but we'll manage that through the Department of Agriculture so that's uh, that's a few of, of the things that we're doing you know we had to prioritize things just like y'all did to, to, to keep our critical operations going we're still doing our food safety and in our animal testing and our in our feed seed and fertilizer testing and all that so um, it's been a load. I know you've been busy. I know your staff's been busy. Uh, I also know how, how helpful those industry uh, partner uh, conversations have been every week or two. Yeah. And uh, that, that's been, I think, strongly valued across the state. And again, probably another example of something we might continue even after the pandemic's done, just to keep yeah. everybody in touch. A lot of people say that. Yeah. Yeah, very good. All right. So let me... Uh, I was going to say, you know, take off your uh, commissioner hat, but I don't want you to take off the mile and no-till hat, but uh, change, yeah. change uh, your frame of reference just a little bit. Uh, many may not know on this call that you're a graduate of our College of Veterinary Medicine. So as, as an alumni of, of our vet school, as someone who's been, to, you know, uh, on campus here at our College of Veterinary Medicine, and someone who's uh, got a daughter that's a practicing veterinarian, I wonder if uh, you'd like to share any, any thoughts or comments about how this is uh, affected our, our veterinary uh, folks across the state, both uh, small and large animals. Well, you know, veterinary practice was one of the critical infrastructures identified early on, but there was some confusion whether that played over to a small animal or not, but, but it does because small animals are important in a lot of people's lives and just the health of those, you have to continue that. Uh, you know, there was an intentional shift early on to try to not do elective surgeries just like on the human side so we could save uh, PPE so we could leave that for the human side more uh, that happened initially the initial shock right away some some clinics closed down uh, completely others did not uh, those that that uh, service livestock uh, never did slow down in fact that that ambulatory business may have increased on in some practices and my daughter's practice does a lot of uh, livestock work as well. So they, they are currently, at least in my daughter's practice, they're currently not letting people in the office. They go out with the mask to the car and, and get the, uh, the pet and bring it into the office to work on it if they need to. And then they do ambulatory calls. or It's a lot easier to social distance. So it, it's had similar impact. I, I know a lot of in their practices have had, seen a decrease in, in their practice and, and their revenue. Uh, I think it's it's starting to bounce back a little bit, uh, and I'd say the livestock practices were less uh, uh, affected than the small animal practices or the ones that were exclusive small animal. But veterinarians know the deal and know how to prevent disease, so they uh, most of them just fell right in line there. Yeah, good. And our our uh, clinics uh, operated just as you've described, uh, with patients uh, driving up outside the facility and then us meeting them there, and it's worked uh, very well. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's been a load on on our uh, faculty and staff at, at the college. They've uh, really continued 
mostly nonstop since the pandemic occurred. Uh, and on top of that, trying to figure out how to do uh, the hands-on education that's required to uh, produce a, a capable, qualified, competent uh, veterinarian. So uh, my hat's off to them for the work they've done uh, throughout this pandemic. So let me ask you one last question, then we'll turn to maybe some questions <coughs> from uh, those on the call here today. Uh, so you're a commissioner of agriculture. You, you've been a veterinarian, served as a state veterinarian for years, but you're also, by, by virtue of the fact that you are commissioner, uh, you're a member of our University of Tennessee Board of Trustees and uh, have been uh, really good about attending and participating in those meetings uh, since your appointment as well. I wonder if you'd like to share any comments about uh, your views of, of the reopening of our campuses. Uh, you've seen system-wide uh, the, the plans and the discussions about that. Any comments you'd like to share with our institute about reopening? Yeah, I, I think it's a good plan. It's very well thought out and I do think that the campuses can safely open. There's a way to do that. I don't know if, if you guys saw one of those, I don't guess it was a study, but did you see where those two positive COVID hairdressers, did you all hear about that? Where they had, they were positive and they, I guess maybe they didn't know it and they continued to operate their beauty salon and they wore masks and their, their clients wore masks and they cut hair on 134 or 139 people and nobody contracted uh, COVID through that transaction. So uh, if you're not a mass believer, you need to be because that's, uh, you know, if you do on the ag side, we, we talk about those procedures that prevent control diseases, biosecurity procedures, and, and it worked very effectively for us or, or my previous life as a state veterinarian. Uh, and and so, so mask and washing hands and social distancing and all that is, is a way we can control or at least try to lower the risk for that. So I think we can do it safely. You know, that's not to say if, if, if you're, if you're a high risk person, probably ought to, you need to, you need to stay isolated most of the time. You know, I've got a 82 year old uh, mother-in-law on our farm campus here, if you will. And we, we do our best to try to protect her. She doesn't go out much at all. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's being done right. And I'm, I'm supportive and I think it's going to be uh, uh at least a good way to, to, to start. Great, thanks commissioner. And, and I agree with you. You know, we've got some pretty darn complex guidance and rules that we're developing yeah. at the state level, at the university level. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's my opinion, the really simplest things is what's the key. Uh, That's washing right. your hands, cleaning your workspace, uh, wearing a mask, staying yeah. six foot apart. Um, so, and thanks. You for know, the, sh the, the shaking hands thing and it, I missed that part of it, but I guess that'll keep us all healthier. We may never shake hands again, you think? We may not. I don't know. Dr. Beal was saying the other day she likes to hug people, and I told her she better uh, get uh, over it. Yeah, that's over with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the time being. All right. So I with that, that. Uh, Lisa, do we, do we have any questions uh, for, for Commissioner Hatcher? We do, Commissioner. Um, here's a question for you. We've been hearing that there is a one-year waiting list for processors to, produce, to process local produced beef. Is this just a short-term issue or is it a COVID-related issue or do you see it as being a long-term issue? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, COVID certainly affected and emphasized it and showed our deficiencies there. Um, and it, but it's, it's a longer-term issue and we're focused on it. So we've had 
gosh, I think uh, Wendy Sneed in our department, who's our meat specialist, our beef specialist, she, she's had 21 or so uh, people interested in opening small processing facility. And within this uh, proposal that we've submitted for the CARES package, we've tied it into the food supply. And so we, we, we think we're gonna be able to use that money to, to, uh, to buy uh, refrigeration equipment, uh, free, freezer equipment, and infrastructure required to expand or put in newer existing uh, small processors. And a matter of fact, a, a couple other states are doing the same thing. So North Carolina and Oklahoma and Tennessee are going to be going down that path because it's it's a national phenomenon. Yeah, I'd say it, some of those are over a year wait. So you, I challenge you to get an appointment to harvest an animal in the next. It just it's it's hard to do. So um, yeah, it's it's a long term deal. We're working on it, and hopefully we'll have uh, we're going to concentrate on that from Ag Enterprise Fund and this new Ag and Forestry COVID relief program that we're going to roll out. So this question actually, um, both of you could answer for your respective areas. Um, um, this person is asking about the use of face shields as opposed to face masks. Do you see an advantage to that? And if so, like where would you, where would you see that? You want to address that first, Tamara? I, I'll, uh, I'll probably address it by saying I'm confused about shields myself. Uh, I've, I can see uh, some some advantages to shields. I know that the university uh, is really focused on uh, making shields available, but I, I've also read that if you don't wear a mask along with the shield, you, it's really not not a great advantage. So I'm I'm going to need some guidance from some of our public health <laughs> experts on shields. I think. Yeah. If it makes good sense, I'm for it, but uh, I. I I don't understand why we wear a shield and a mask uh, at the same time. Seems uh, seems like that's even even more intrusive and, and less uh, comfortable. So, Charlie, I don't know what you've heard about it. No, I, I I've heard the same thing. It is kind of confusing. I, and, you know, if you didn't have to wear a mask and a shield, then you could at least see their lips <laughs> or see their face. I mean, some people I don't even recognize with the mask on. Have you noticed that? Yes. Uh, so. Uh, Anyhow, so I, you know, I think there was, uh, I know that there's been some shields used in meat processing. And, and I guess the idea behind that is to protect the eyes as well, because you could, you could absorb things through your eyes. That would be helpful. But for, for just a regular person, I can't see it. But then again, I mean, we're using plexiglass, uh, you know, it registers and, and where you have that. And I think those work well. I went to the co-op a month or two ago and they had their whole service counter enclosed and that's I think that's smart so uh, uh, yeah I'm not a, I think there's a place for it but I don't know where exactly you know one of the things I do is say I don't know but we got people that do know yeah in our chat uh, Dr. David Anderson has a thought or two David you want to share with the group just just a little bit of, of your perspective on this yeah I think it's just addressing the two modes of transmission and so the you know, we know that the principal reason to wear a face mask is to keep you from contaminating the environment so that you're not exposing other people. The shields, whether it's a face shield or a, or a workstation shield, is to help protect you from, from other people, especially if they're not wearing a mask. And so it's just, it's a two layer protection to try to catch the, 
the uh, road that's going in both directions. Well, that makes good sense. Thank you, David. We are so lucky to have medical professionals because they've also um, shared that uh, you have to remember masks are not 100% effective. And so that's why social distancing also plays a role in this. So um, we do have a few questions, Dr. Cross, that are coming your way. Um, one is that in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the data show that local numbers are all trending upwards and at an increasingly fast rate. How do we reconcile that data with plans to come back on campus? Yeah, I think uh, you could uh, generalize that question, not only to plans to come back to campus, but plans to send children back to school and and plans, you know, for uh, continued uh, ramping up of employment uh, across the state or across the country. So I, I, uh, I see the data. Uh, I actually agree with that and, and ask myself the same thing. I do believe we've actually seen a bit of a leveling off the last three or four days, but as, uh, as Commissioner Piercy and many others would say, don't look at one or two days data. You know, you've got to look at longer term data. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to say, oh, don't worry, it's leveled off. I don't know if it has or not. But I think the other thing uh, we're starting to realize is this thing's not going away tomorrow or the day after or the day after. We're, we're in a long-term battle here. And uh, I think uh, short of saying that we're going to stay locked in our homes for the next three or four months, which I don't think anyone wants to do, uh, we, we've got to figure out, and I think we have figured out, some ways that we can safely manage and cope with uh, the coronavirus, uh, recognizing there's going to be uh, positive cases. But if we do everything we can uh, to prevent uh, reduced transmission and to avoid uh, uh, catching it ourselves, I think we're part of the solution then, even as we uh, ramp up uh, our, our offices being more accessible and as we ramp up uh, education for students uh, back on campus. And I'd also say when it comes to coming back on campus, remember we're not gonna be conducting uh, lectures to uh, 250 to 400 students in one room. We've, we've adjusted social distancing. Uh, we're making sure that there's proper uh, hygiene uh, for uh, sanitizing uh, before and after classes. Uh, we're making people self-screen so that uh, if you're uh, feeling ill if you've got symptoms you're not to come to campus not to come to work so i think we have procedures out there that certainly require cooperation certainly require uh, uh, good behavior on all our parts but if we'll all do our part uh, we, we can continue to move this direction and do so uh, with uh, a minimum of risk there's nothing that's totally uh, certain in this world and uh, I don't know that, that we can be absolutely certain that we can cross the street tomorrow uh, safely, but we can do so wisely and we can uh, follow practices, uh, whether it be COVID or anything else, that uh, give us the very best chance of, of staying safe and staying healthy. And on top of all that, then I come back, back to what the commissioner mentioned, and that is, but if you're in a highly vulnerable, high-risk category, uh, you should stay isolated, you should stay uh, uh, working remotely, and you should work with your uh, supervisor uh, to make sure that's the case. Commissioner, I'll just ask if you want to make any comments about the, the increasing number of cases and, and how that impacts our, our reopening. Well, I, I, I think your comments were, we're recording this. I might use your comments later. 
Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm, I find myself, I go to the, uh, to the t uh, department of health website every day and, and do that positivity rate. If you look at the positivity rate, I had, has anybody looked today? No, but it, it, it's, I wouldn't let the number of positive tests scare you, but you need to look and see how many tests were run. So we've been running, I know we went from like five, we jumped to 8% and then a couple of times we jumped up to 10 or 10 point something. The last couple of days when I checked it, it was about eight and a half percent, might've hit 9%. So, you know, Florida hit as high as 20. So I think it, the positivity rate is something you need to watch. But I agree with you. I mean, there's, uh, we have to follow these, all these procedures together to, to do it right. And including the face coverings and hand washing and social and all that. But I, I do think there's a safe way to do it, but you've got to protect that high risk group. And, and, and you're right. They, they have to work that out through, through their uh, supervisor and that, and that can be done because that, it would, it just wouldn't be smart to put an 82 year old with, uh, you know, with diabetes out in the general public with or without a face mask. You know? uh, so, um, but, you know, another comment or two, you know, as part of that economic recovery group, we had to, had to, had to open the economy on a limited basis. I mean, it was on life support. It was fixing to be a total economic collapse. I mean, I know there's some that say, well, that's, that's not good to, to open things up, but we, we tried to do that safely. And, and uh, I know we've seen this latest trend to go up. And another thing you have to look at too is, is your is your healthcare system? We surely and are not going to do our best to to have some headspace and keep some some headspace available. I think if you see that beginning to max out, then you're going to see some more action taken. Uh, I know the some of the hospitals are already not doing elective surgeries, and that'll help in that respect. But because last thing we want to do is 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 take away that healthcare option, then you would have more people dying. We're not going to do that or I hope we don't do that. So we'll, we'll take different action, but um, we, you know, we have to, there's, there's risk. We can limit the risk, but we can't eliminate it. Thanks commissioner. And, and in some ways you're exactly right. We got to learn. We, we had to learn to live with it because you're right. I don't, I don't think it's, it's not going to be business as usual until we have an effective vaccine. Do you think? I no, mean, I, the, I agree the days of mass gatherings and things are over until that happens. And then you've got to worry about, and what I worry about is the next, next one. I mean, there's already uh, in my previous life dealing with viruses and bird flu and swine flu, you know, there's talk of another swine flu uh, mutation that could affect another pandemic. So we're, we're, we're working with uh, also going to submit a, propo a proposal to the governor's office on, the one health concept is really right on spot now because we want to be able to do some, some human uh, animal uh, human COVID testing at our lab to run as overflow for the health department because they need some help right now and we can provide that. Very good. Yeah. I think uh, both at the state level and at the university level, the, the uh, move to uh, really ramp up uh, one health work is, is yeah. <laughs> well timed, maybe, maybe 10 years too late in some respects, but boy, no time like the present to, to ramp right. up further. So um, in thinking about cases rising and this uh, continuing to grow, what 
Tim, in particular, what would it take to change your mind about opening or keeping open the campus? And is there a plan for potentially closing if it did get out of control? Yeah, we've, we've actually talked about that uh, among the chancellors, President Boyd, and, and uh, it, it comes right back to something Commissioner Hatcher just mentioned. We really think key would be uh, uh, our healthcare capacity, uh, availability of hospital beds, availability of ventilators, uh, availability of bed space uh, and, and emergency care, uh, ICU space. Those in particular, uh, if, if we can't treat cases, then, then it's really a, a dangerous situation. Uh, if there is that capacity, we've got, you know, a better ability to respond uh, to a, a positive case should it occur and should it uh, require uh, really uh, in-depth treatment. So I think that would be first and foremost. Uh, secondly, I, I don't think uh, it, it's not going to be an independent decision. Uh, I think uh, for the Institute of Ag to declare we're going to close and Knoxville remain open is, is not going to happen and vice versa. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll coordinate uh, very closely with Chancellor Plowman and her staff uh, and also, uh, of course, uh, make sure uh, uh, the president uh, is on board with whatever decision might need to be made as well. So I've said before, it, it takes months and months of planning to get ready, but changing course and declaring, you know, we're going to uh, go a different direction and, and everybody work remotely again, that, that, as we've seen, can happen very quickly. So uh, I, I'm sure not indicating that could never happen. Uh, it, it could, but I think we're continuing to plan and, and move towards uh, reopening uh, with the notion that we've got to do so safely, but we've got to serve uh, uh, the citizens of the state, we've got to serve our students, uh, we've got to serve animal owners uh, and carry out our mission as well. So um, there's a question about our um, facilities that are uh, off campus and visited frequently by customers and clients. And there's um, still concern about just how effectively those uh, restroom facilities will be will be cleaned. Is there some way to maybe um, set up porta potties or some sort of uh, facility bathrooms that employees could use? At least that would take the um, you know the use off of uh, those facilities and have them available for clients. Well, that's a great question. And that may be the first time in my career that I've had someone suggest they would like to have a porta potty. Uh, and, but I understand the, the logic or the thinking there. If we've got commonly accessed public areas and we're not sure to what extent uh, they're really being sanitized, I, I get it. So I, I understand. This is probably one of the most challenging areas for us because we are so dependent on our partners, whether they be county government or others uh, for providing our space. And, you know, that partnership means uh, that, that we get the space, but uh, as, as the owners of that space, uh, others control and, and manage much of how the space is managed. So that, that creates a, a real dilemma for us. I think uh, those kinds of situations are gonna have to be tackled one by one. I think if it's a county office that we're talking about, for example, uh, that warrants a discussion with the, the regional director. If it's a rec facility, I think that, that warrants a discussion either with the rec director or with uh, Dr. Shin's office. So I, I, I don't know that I can uh, give any blanket recommendation here other than to say, 
I've, as I've always said, if you have concerns, let us know specifically what they are, and then let's figure out how to address them. Uh, and that is, I think, the best approach uh, to a facilities uh, challenge uh, like we've described uh, that, that I have, and, and I'll commit to helping any way I can. If it's a matter of needing supplies or if it's a matter of, of a, an alternative restroom facility, uh, surely we can figure out how to, how to do that and, and make it uh, such that it's healthy and, and comfortable for those uh, that are working there. And one follow-up to the uh, 4-H comments, this person is asking, um, is that is your recommendations for all events or just UT 4-H events? Um, recommendations for all events. Um, um, as far as just self-isolating or not having oh, to just... Yeah, I think that goes for any event or any activity, any, any meeting. If, if you've been at, at some group gathering uh, and uh, again, unless you know you've had, uh, as, as Dr. Hatcher described, prolonged uh, direct close exposure, there's no reason to immediately self-isolate. Uh, now, if you're exhibiting symptoms or, you know, other, otherwise concerned about your health, that's another matter. But simply attending any event uh, and then uh, being required to self-isolate is, is not uh, what we've been recommending. So um, we do have a question about traveling to a hot zone. Is that still a requirement that we need to self-isolate? You know, I, again, I think uh, we need to be smart about what we're doing and it, it uh, depends on the nature of the travel and, and how, how that's being approached. So uh, if we're uh, going to visit a family member uh, in Los Angeles, but we're driving there. I don't know why we would, but uh, you know, we're going by private vehicle. Uh, we're going straight to a family member's home. That family has no positive case. We're coming straight back to work. I don't see that that would warrant uh, a required self-isolation. If we're staying in a hotel in Los Angeles and frequenting many public places and, and interacting uh, in uh, uh, entertainment venues and so forth, uh, and I'm picking on Los Angeles, but just as an example that I think everyone knows is a hot spot. If we're uh, visiting a hot spot and doing more of that uh, sort of public uh, interaction, I think that warrants consideration as to whether uh, it might be a requirement to self-isolate. And I know this puts a lot of burden on our supervisors, but I think that's going to have to be a conversation with the supervisor and agree what's best for the employee and for the unit uh, in which that person works. So we have a question um, regarding uh, printed guidance uh, for starting up with UT campuses and, and our K-12 schools. A lot of people do have students that they are having to negotiate, you know, either keeping them home or sending them on to school. So the person is asking just what's expected of faculty, staff, full-time and part-time workers um as far as coming back to the workplace good and again i i'm gonna put some of the burden on our supervisors but we've said our offices need to be open that doesn't mean every person has to be in the office every day we can work out a schedule uh and i hope we can work out those schedules such that if a family has children and they say i've got to at least be able to take my children to school or provide care for them 
uh, in the mornings, but I'm available in the afternoons. You know, we need to be flexible and work with individuals like that. Uh, but we've got to be cognizant of, of uh, you know, treating everyone fairly. So uh, I don't think it's a matter that we can say anyone with children doesn't, doesn't have to work. Uh, and I also don't think we can say uh, because anyone's younger, they have to work. You know, we've got to look at this uh, from a matter of fairness and equity. So uh, it's going to be a, a judgment call, certainly, and, and we can have our human resources staff assist if need be. But let's try to work uh, within each of our offices determine what the, the personal challenges are uh, of our employees, but then figure out a way that we can also work together to, uh, to conduct the programs, do the research, provide the teaching, uh, provide the clinical service uh, that we need to do uh, in order to serve the state. So, Commissioner, I, I suspect you've probably been asked some, some similar questions. Anything you'd uh, add or you may want to disagree with, with what I've shared? No. No, I agree with that. I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm glad you're getting all the hard questions. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, but really, I, th I think you, you, I think you're right. You've got to use some common sense on this. See, I, and I referred to this before, I, I live on a farm here and there's eight families that live on the farm that are hatcher, hatcher influenced. And my mother-in-law lives in a house by herself and she's 82 and got some health issues. So, so we're in close contact with her a lot of times and with the grandchildren. So, I mean, they, I pretty, I'm as careful as I can be. I'll go downtown, you know, that's a hot zone. Nashville's a hot zone. I go downtown, but I've got a mask on. I'm, I'm distancing. I'm not eating food with anybody. And then I get to that, go to that meeting and I get out. Uh, but it does make me a little bit nervous. I think you, you still have to be as careful as you can and do a combination of all those. I'm sure everybody has a similar concern, you know, somebody in the family that's high risk. Uh, but, uh, you know, most of the, what we found at least within our department, we've been following, or the employees been following guidelines as close as they can. If, if they count, uh, we've had a number of, I'd say less than 12 or 15 out of 1800, out of 800 employees uh, with COVID. And, Usually that's come from, uh, it hasn't come from being at work or, or, or working from home or, or any kind of our activities. I suspect the same way would be for, you, for, for your people. Probably gonna get it from a relative that, that's got it or, or uh, doing something that I don't know or exposure to, I don't know, to, to close contact with somebody or they didn't know it, you know. So we have uh, what it looks like one more question and it's asked, uh, this person is wondering if there's any guidance on 4-H school club implementation this fall. Mm, that's a good question. And I think that's gonna be really hard to do statewide given the, the fact that every school district is pretty much making their own decisions about reopening, going online, doing some, some combination. Uh, I have not checked to see if uh, maybe Mr. Justin Crow is with us today. Justin, if you're on, would you like to uh, speak to that? I'm looking to see it. I, I don't see uh, Justin Crow with us. So let me just suggest, Lisa, we, we uh, get back to that uh, individual with regard to that question. And, and maybe that, that warrants, uh, you know, uh, a broader message to all of our 4-H staff. So good question. I'm sorry, I can't. Answer, answer more specifically. 
Oh, and I, I think I just see Mr. Crow on now. Mr. Crow, you want to comment about conducting? Whoops, I think he dropped off again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Justin, are you on? All right, we'll get back on that one. We'll get back. And just a reminder to everyone, um, if you if questions come to mind, you can enter them at the coronavirus website. Um, and, and we do try to get back to uh, people as quickly as we can on, on those questions. Lisa, can you all hear me now? Ah, there he is. I'm sorry. I had, I had hit the wrong button. So we, uh, we are working diligently to address that. We know it's a real need. We've um, appointed a fall programming think tank that's putting together some best practices and recommendations. They are um, working diligently to have some best practices. We're looking at things like Google Classroom, for example, to be able to engage with young people. Uh, Dr. Sensman and I talked earlier this week. I'm trying to put together some resources for agents in particular, you know, for example, if they're asked and invited to come into a school that will allow them to come in, but they have concerns about that. Uh, we're trying to put together some guidelines, some talking points. So we've got a whole team working on it. Um, their deadline is um, this next Friday to have all that information ready to go out. So more details are forthcoming. Great. Thanks very much, Justin. Sorry to put you on the spot there, but uh, appreciate you uh, letting us know what's going on. I, I just saw Lori uh, submitted uh, an answer as well. So thanks to both of you. And I see uh, Dr. DeNovo says we're actually using uh, porta potties right here at our College of Veterinary Medicine as well. So uh, that's uh, a great example of being creative and, and addressing a need. Uh, so thanks, uh, Dr. DeNovo. Awesome. Well, Tim, I think you're off the hot seat at this point. So do you have any final comments? Well, let me just say, I, we're all on the hot seat, you know, to some extent, because we're all being looked at as leaders. We're all being looked at to set an example. We're all expected to provide answers, uh, whether it be at home or in our communities. So yeah, I might have had to field a few of these questions today, but I know each and every one of you has to field questions too. Uh, so let's be uh, the, the positive example that we can be. And I, I keep harping on this, but I do think the only way we can really uh, be successful uh, in managing through this pandemic is with the simplest of things, washing our hands, uh, cleaning our workstations, wearing masks, uh, keeping distance from in individuals, staying home when we're sick or think we might be sick, uh, reporting if, if we are uh, showing symptoms, those are the things that are going to make the most difference. All the rest of the guidance and restrictions and, and rules that we have in place are really based upon those simple practices happening. And so if those don't happen, none of the rest of it uh, really, really helps us a whole lot. So I'm sorry to be a broken record on that, but that, that just has to be uh, our, our commitment. And it, it really, that reminds me that uh, several weeks ago, we had a training that we uh, offered uh, about uh, how to successfully and safely uh, return to work, uh, if you will. Uh, I actually, you know, had forgotten some of that and went back and watched it myself yesterday. That training remains available on, on Kate. And so uh, if you go to Kate and just type COVID-19 in the search, you can find that again. You may want to get a refresher too. Uh, it's still out there and it's still uh, very pertinent and relevant. I know our faculty and staff are continuing to be really innovative and in meeting needs, delivering programs. Uh, yesterday's uh, kickoff of the Milan 
no-till virtual field day, I think is a, another great example of how we've been able to keep everyone safe while also conducting uh, our major, one of the major field days that we do every year uh, or every other year in the case of Milan. So uh, keep, keep up the innovation, the creativity, uh, and uh, keep yourselves safe. I want to, again, say a special thanks to Commissioner Hatcher and all the staff at TDA. You know, we've got a really close working relationship uh, with the Tennessee Department of Agriculture, and I, I really see how that benefits our organization, and I hope uh, the commissioner feels the same way. We appreciate uh, his personal support and the department's uh, overall support and partnership uh, in so many ways. And uh, I'll just give uh, Commissioner Hatcher, if he wants to share one last word or thought, now might be the time to do it, Charlie. No, I agree with that. And just right back at you, I mean, the, the relationship we have with the UTIA is, is, is tremendous and it needs to be that way. And agriculture and forestry is number one and we want to keep it that way. And, and uh, this too shall pass at some point. But we've, we've got to get better and better and, and, and follow those simple, simple biosecurity procedures, as I like to call them, and we'll, uh, there'll be a vaccine at some point. I agree. Well, let me wrap up just by saying, if you'll think back to the very first one of these fireside chats, I mentioned that, you know, I chose that name because I looked back and, and thought about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and how he felt like it was important to communicate uh, during a time of war. And, uh, you know, we're still in the war, but uh, I do think uh, we're making progress. So we're not ready to declare victory, that's certain. But, uh, but we're out there fighting this war, and each of us uh, can do our part and, and should continue to do our part uh, to really uh, keep everyone safe, uh, keep uh, the, the risk of transmission as low as possible. So thank you uh, for all that you're doing. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, your, your uh, commitment to uh, the Institute of Agriculture, to our students, to our rural communities, uh, to our animal owners. Uh, appreciate uh, the work that you do. And I hope uh, each of you have a great weekend. So with that, uh, I'll conclude and turn it back to Lisa to uh, wrap up here. Thanks so much, Tim. And thank you, Commissioner, for being with us today. We really enjoyed that. And um, yes, I'll echo Dr. Cross. Everybody have a wonderful weekend.